Welcome to Pazina Perspectives, brought to you by Pazina Investment Management, a global value manager known for our commitment to fundamental research and disciplined value investing. Today's episode features portfolio manager John Flynn and ESG research analyst Luke Longinati in conversation with Adrian Jackson, a director of business development and client services based out of our London office. The trio discusses Pazina's opportunity list, which seeks to systematically identify opportunities where material ESG issues exist and engagement could have a positive impact. This podcast is presented by Pazina Investment Management LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor, and is intended for institutional investors only. The views expressed reflect the current views of Pazina as of the date hereof and are subject to change. There is no guarantee that any protection, forecast, or opinion in this material will be realized. Past performance is not indicative of future results. In the UK, this podcast is for professional clients only. This marketing communication is presented by Pazina Investment Management Limited, which is an appointed representative of ACA Mirabella. ACA Mirabella is authorized and regulated by the FCA. Hi, John. Hi, Luke. Uh, thanks for this today. I'm looking forward to it. Should be an interesting discussion. Uh, obviously, the overriding question is what we're here to answer is what is Pazina's uh, ESG opportunity list? But I, I think to set some context, John, if you could, please, uh, it probably is worth you just quickly walking through how we view the role of ESG at Pazina. Certainly. Thanks, Adrian. And, and thanks for joining us. It's fun to have a, uh, a, a transatlantic podcast um, and, and to kick this off. Um, but yeah, when we think about ESG at Pazina, um, you know, we come at it from the approach of value investors, right? Where fundamentally we're looking for businesses where um, you're getting uh, the, the long-term value of the company at a substantial discount to what we think it's worth. Um, and so it's an integrated approach to ESG because many times that issue that's causing that discount is an ESG-related issue. And we really believe longer term, there's opportunity through the improvement of those ESG metrics that are causing this disconnect in the marketplace in terms of valuations. Um, And we've even done some empirical evidence. Granted, this is with a limited data set, but if you look historically, um, improving ESG scores have correlated with positive investment returns and outperformance. So we think there's something here from both, you know, the fundamental uh, ESG analysis side and the investment performance and improvement over time. Mm-hmm. And, and as, as John alluded to there, we, we do view ESG as a fully integrated process here at Pazina, meaning that um, the, the analysts themselves are the ones who are, are, are assessing these issues and opportunities and, and coming up with the um, financially material uh, implications for that. We, we, we focus on ESG issues that have a financial impact on the business. Um, and, and through the lens of single materiality um, being, you know, what we think is most relevant for us as long-term shareholders. Um, this, you know, integration happens at every step of the process um, by the sector analysts with the support of the ESG team, where we, um, we do serve as some, somewhat of an internal consultant for them, where um, some issues that are maybe, maybe a little bit more cross-cutting across industries or, um, you know, as a, as a check on what they think of as the, the financially material ESG issues, we will, we will help them uh, along that path. But, uh, but again, I'd stress that it is really uh, owned and integrated by the analysts who are, are making the investment decisions. 
Okay. Thanks, Bob. I think that's a good overview of, of what ESG means to us as a firm. Uh, John, if I can come back to you, please. Can you just maybe just summarise what we think of as the uh, what we mean when we talk about the Xena Opportunity List? Yeah. So, so as I mentioned, you know, we really see improvement in this ESG as a, as a as a potential long-term value driver. And so, what we sought out to create was a way of systematically flagging these these potential opportunities. Um, and so, Adrian, when you take a step back and think about our, our investment process and our screening process with Stock Analyzer, right, we start with 10 years of naive data, project that into the future, uh, kind of a mean reversion model based on 10 years of history to come up with our long-term normal earnings estimate. That's a naive normal earnings estimate that then we go and fully research to flush out to say, hey, you know, does that history make sense? What's changed? What should this business earn based on our research? versus, you know, what does the model naively say? When it comes to the opportunity list, we actually take a very similar approach where there's a number of different metrics we, we factor in, um, you know, MSCI rating, carbon intensity, um, and we naively screen up kind of the, the companies that, that look the worst, and those get flagged uh, early on in the process as potential ESG opportunity lists. They're naively on the opportunity list. Then as part of our research process, as we build that out um, and go through the initial review, the company visit, and ultimately the final review, we make a decision whether that company should be on the opportunity list um, with a formal engagement plan or whether it was a, you know, for lack of a better word, a misscreened um, by that naive screen. Mm. Yeah, I'll just elaborate a little bit on, on those metrics. So as John mentioned, the, the MSCI score um, is obviously an industry uh, relative way for us to assess um, if, if a company is below average in its industry. So we look at whether or not they have a, a triple B or, or a b below a triple B rating, uh, according to MSCI. Um, then we also uh, look at their carbon intensity uh, relative to the investment universe. We, we want to look at the, um, the companies that are in the highest decile of emissions intensity measured by the, the tons of CO2 uh, divided, normalized by their, their sales revenue for that year, um, th recognizing that, that that could be an inherent uh, you know, indication that, the, that this company is more exposed to climate transition risk or the risks that come with the, the energy transition. Um, in addition, we also are looking at the um, the status within the the UN Global Compact principles, which um, are you know de demonstrative of good business practices, and where we think that if if a company is being flagged by the UN Global Compact as a as a fail company, we want to take a look at that and look at what the controversy is and see um, what the details are to make sure that we you know if we agree or disagree with with that status. And then finally, we're looking at, uh, as a measure of good governance, the independence of the audit committee, which we have found through some research is potentially the most empirically linked to um, outperformance for companies uh, of governance practices. So we want to look at the individual members of the audit committee, uh, make a determination on their independence, and, and push for that kind of fully independent audit committee. Um, as, as we, you know, we, John said, we, we look at these naive metrics truly naively. Um, they, they are, they're, they're, they're starting point. They're an input into our process. Um, but there, there is no substitute as, as we go through this to the, the, the fundamental research that the analyst is doing. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of times we find we disagree with some of these screening metrics. Other times we think that uh, a company that we're looking at hasn't flagged here and, and there but there is a controversy that we should be you know accounting for and engaging with management on so we'll add them at that point as well
I think that's a, a great summary of the theory. But Luke, staying with you if we can, please. Can you just run through how it kind of plays out in practice? Yep. Sure. So um, when, when a name gets through the initial review process, um, meaning that the analyst is going to do a little bit more work on them, that's when uh, myself and Rachel Siegel, the head of ESG here at Pizzino, will, will look at them from a more purely uh, ESG uh, posturing. Um, we, we make kind of a more ad hoc determination if, um, you know, is there a financially material uh, opportunity or issue in this company based on you know these naive metrics or some of the other analysis that we're looking at. Um, obviously, the guiding question is, is this a financially material ESG risk? Um, and therefore, should we incorporate it? And should the analysts be thinking about this when they're looking at the range of outcomes for the stock? Um, in, in practice, we did this to all the names uh, over our, of our portfolio over the last year and a half as we've been developing this opportunity list. And um, that, that led us to about 50 names where we thought that, um, you know, engagement could have a, a positive impact and in, in the improvement of these material ESG issues could, could lead to better outcomes for the stock. So after the initial review process for, the, for names that are being added to the portfolio, that's when, um, you know, the analyst, the ESG team, and the portfolio managers will uh, make a decision um, you know, do we think that this should be something that we should add to the opportunity list? And if so, what are we going to be pushing for here? Um, so after, if we make a buy decision at the final review, the analyst will have an engagement plan with uh, a, a longer term objective of engagement to, to resolve, potentially resolve this ESG issue, as well as some key milestones that, we, you know, we've established through the, the, the collaboration of the team that we think will be indicative of the, the progress that we want to see trending in the right direction for this company. Um, this plan will be you know, iterated on over the uh, investment horizon, and, and it is always owned by the analyst themselves, who um, is obviously closest to the companies, is oftentimes having discussions with management, um, and is best suited to you know, track the progress and make any changes needed. And, and Adrian, I think it's 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 important also to 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 highlight that this this is an enhancement to the research process. This isn't changing the way we fundamentally invest. This is we think this is a, a way to, to drive value. You know, if you're flagging in the most uh, carbon intense uh, decile, you know, you have to be thinking about the impact of a, of a transition and and financializing that in in our earnings forecast. And so, you know, most of the time, the things that flag up aren't necessarily surprises to us that they, they screen up onto the, the opportunity list naively, but this is kind of making sure that gets called out and we come up with a formal plan for engagement around it. Okay, so that's kind of, you know, maybe you can give an example, John, of a company where the issues weren't reflected in the naive metrics, but we still added the company to the opportunity list anyway. No, that's a, that's a good point because it, it works both ways, right? You can, you can be screened up naively and, and come off, and similarly, we can say, you know what, this, the screen didn't pick this up, but this is something we think is really important, and we want to spend some time on to make sure we focus on it. And an interesting example that came up in, in, in this, this realm was General Electric in the depths of COVID. Um, you know, we have a, a, a very detailed proxy voting um, guidelines and, and process, and, and, and one of the tenets of that is that, you know, boards and, and compensation committees uh, do not reprice stock options and stock grants during a program. And what happened in the depths of COVID was uh, the, the board of GE decided to reset Larry Culp's uh, equity package. 
and they said it at a much lower price because the stock was was you know in the tank, and so that came up for the proxy vote in 2021 around the advisory stay on pay and 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 what should we do about that, um, and it was a kind of a nuanced situation because we very much believed that 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 Larry Culp had been doing a good job in the turnaround at GE. Um, he had our support as a manager, and we wanted him to remain as CEO, but we also didn't want to encourage this behavior of, of repricing options. So we engaged with GE around both investor relations, different members of the board, um, and, and the human resources uh, professionals there as well, to really have a dialogue about uh, you know, why we don't think this is best practice, uh, why we don't encourage it, and ultimately we did not vote for the, uh, the, the in favor of the say on pay, and we abstained from voting for the members of the comp committee uh, as a result of these actions. We also put GE on the opportunity list with a, a sort of an action plan of continuing to engage around compensation practices at GE, and it's particularly uh, relevant because GE had announced that they were going to be spinning off their businesses over time, right? So they spun out their healthcare business. At the end of last year, they'll be spinning out the uh, power business at the end of this year. So, so how do you set the incentives for those uh, executives going forward tied to both the businesses they've been running, but also not, you know, the things that will be spun out? How do you make sure that they don't just neglect those because they won't be part of their compensation going forward? So these are active dialogues we continue to be on, uh, to, to engage with on the company. Um, and kind of, you know, we have the plan written out on the opportunity list, uh, engagement plan, uh, and, and we, we update that on a regular basis. Now, look, you mentioned it before, carbon intensity, that is. It's a pretty big issue. Um, can you give us a name of a company that's on the list for that reason, for its carbon intensity, maybe? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so as John said before, you know, the, we we use carbon intensity as as an indicator of of a climate transition risk. Um, you know, the the energy transition we think is a is a potential you know long term impact on a lot of businesses, um, and carbon intensity is the best way to assess a, a company's exposure to that and and kind of look at the negative potential outcomes that could happen because there are high emitters in this space. Um, this is a, a global issue, but, but we do recognize that there are some regional nuances. So when we looked at carbon intensity, when assessing companies for the, the opportunity list, we do want to look at uh, you know, a regional basis. So emerging market companies compared against emerging market companies, domestic companies compared against domestic companies of similar cap size, and, and, and make sure that we're making a one-for-one -one comparison there. Um, that being said, you know, failure to acknowledge and, and, and mitigate the potential risk is going to be, you know, an impact on the business regardless of where you are. So if we want to make sure that companies that are in this highest decile have a plan, and we'll we'll have them on the opportunity list for that reason, but we'll be continuing to engage with them with the hopes that they will be getting off, um, you know, lowering their emissions over time, or at least doing something to to account for for that transition. Um, you know, a good good example of this is Shell, uh, where you know it is a, a big issue. Uh, potential risk, but it's also presents a major opportunity for them. You know, obviously being an oil major, um, they are relatively exposed to the the climate transition risk just from the the, the weaning of fossil fuels that would be expected o over time. Um, and, but we believe that you know through th pretty well coordinated action, Shell is taking a lot a lot of the right steps to um, you know future proof their business. 
uh, one of the things that they have is a, a, what, what we believe is a credible net zero plan. Um, they have set out uh, for net zero by 2050, as well as some short-term targets. Um, that being said, you know, they, they, they're not, you know, they're not, they're, they are recognizing that there is a demand for, you know, certain transition fuels such as gas uh, in, in the near term. And so they are investing, continuing to invest in their uh, liquefied natural gas, which they think will be uh, a good uh, transition fuel to help uh, wean some of the economy off of those more carbon intensive fuels in the meantime, while we transition away. And, and as well as that, they are also still investing in some renewables uh, and solutions business, which over the longer term will you know, play a role in the decarbonization of their business uh, in total. Um, you know, importantly, uh, we, we do think that they're doing this responsibly. Um, they're, they're, they're being very disciplined in how they are allocating their capital to these businesses. Uh, and they're not doing things that we think will be harmful to us as shareholders, um, and, and it will be positive for the business over time. Um, and our, our oil and gas analyst, TVR Murti, uh, he engages with them regularly. Um, he, he has set the plan uh, for on the opportunity list to, to continue to engage with them, to, to hold them to account for what they have established as their, their, their goals over this time, and make sure that what they are actually doing in practice is what they say that they're doing. So, Luke, that's an interesting example, and I think one of the things that, that we've also done in some cases is where companies don't have a good transition plan or haven't talked about their, their, their plans for the transition really encourage them to engage and report more. And this happened with uh, National Oil of Varco and OV, um, where the CEO was very hesitant to put out any long-term targets because he said it's very difficult to do. Um, and we agree this isn't easy. But, you know, we have had multiple dialogues in encouraging him to start that journey of putting out, uh, you know, a transition plan and what that means for the company over time. Um, and that's another name that we've actually added to the opportunity list because of this lack of, of, of a longer term plan and engaged with them on it. That's great. Thanks. Uh, John, if I can come to you back again, please. Um, once the name is on the opportunity list, what kind of impact does engagement have, do you think? Well, I think, you know, engagement in, in general is really a dialogue uh, with, with the company, right? It, it's very easy to identify, okay, there's a, there's a carbon transition risk here, or there's been a governance oversight here. Um, fixing those problems or managing a business through that isn't as black and white, right? There are all sorts of trade-offs that, that, that management teams have to think about, um, you know, just from a resource standpoint, from a, you know, what's actually feasible, and so that dialogue we have and that engagement we have with the companies around these issues really is, it, it's a journey. It's not, not an ultimatum, if you will, right? And, and I think that that dialogue allows us to help steer the direction over time of where those companies are heading uh, on these very important issues and kind of, you know, make sure that, you know, we're moving in the right direction and that they're thinking about it and being held accountable, as Luke said. Um, you know, you don't always get a positive outcome um, w with engagement. Um, you know, and that's certainly the case. That's, that's true for things that aren't on the opportunity list, too. Um, you know, we, we're not going to be right all the time on the investment side, um, and engagement isn't always going to work. But we think that by being there and being part of the dialogue um, in, in presenting the opportunity for improvement, that's much better than not being a part of it at all. Um, and so that's how we kind of approach engagement uh, for the opportunity to list stocks. 
Thanks, John. That was really useful. In fact, this whole session has been pretty useful. And I think in the interest of time, we should probably start to wrap up soon. But before we do so, Luke, um, can you just run through how often we review the stocks on the opportunity list to see if they should still be there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so as I, you know, kind of mentioned earlier, we this is the responsibility of the individual analysts to to you know engage with the company and, and to monitor that over time. Um, us on the ESG team, we we do provide support in that capacity. Um, you know, ad hoc and especially as new names get added. Um, you know, we, we want to make sure that uh, we're 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 continuing to to assess the progress of the companies that we have and, and make sure that, you know, if there's a fundamental change or if there's a new controversy which has come up, uh, we want to be aware of it and we want to be, you know, internally recognizing that. Um, that being said, we do have a, a more formal uh, twice a year uh, review process in place where um, the, the ESG team, the the analysts, and the portfolio managers of the relevant strategies will will get together and review every every name that we have on the uh, opportunity list. Um, this is you know just a, a more formal setting for us to um, you know look at if there are any changes um, that should be assessed at the company level. Um, if there are any additional names that maybe haven't been considered up to this point that should have been. Um, and, and, you know, look at the engagement and, and look at the progress of the engagement, see, see if there needs to be any change in, in how we're, we're approaching this process. Um, that being said, there, there is no set time limit uh, for anything that gets added or, uh, you know, we don't look for something, you know, to, if after two years, for example, there's no progress or there's minimal progress, we're going to, you know, divest. That's not how we're approaching this. We, we, we really do think that these are company-specific issues. They're all going to have very, you know, different timelines. Um, you know, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to engagement, and, and, and having some sort of hard rule would really restrict our ability to, to push for these things over time. So um, we, we do look at the whole picture um, and, and we do use this kind of more formal setting uh, as a way to kind of, you know, maybe set some of those um, goals for the longer term. But, but in reality, it's more just, you know, making sure we're, we're trending in the right direction. Perfect. Thank you for that. Um, John, any final thoughts from you before we wrap up? Well, I think it kind of comes back to where we started, which is this idea of an integrated approach, right? These, these ESG-related issues that are creating investment opportunities for us aren't new, right? That's been along a lot longer than we've talked about ESG. You know, it goes back the whole history of investing. Um, you know, companies have, have had had ESG issues. We just didn't have that vocabulary. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, this integrated approach that we've laid out really takes that fundamental research approach in that engagement approach and, 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 and gives you the opportunity to add value over the long term. Um, and I think as we've been been rolling this out and kind of, you know, discussing this with, 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 with clients and prospects, the result has been very favorable in terms of the feedback we've gotten. I think people really appreciate um, the thoughtfulness of the process and, and the, the, the engagement and the ability to, to, to really dig in and talk about what we're doing, what are the conversations we're having and where we're going. And obviously, you know, this is a journey. Um, and so... You know, we'll continue to, to improve and, and look at this process the same way we do at our investment process and everything else. Um, but, you know, we're excited about where we are and, and look forward to talking more about it in the future. Thank you, John. Thank you, Luke. I think that was both interesting and comprehensive. If any of our listeners are interested in more information, um, please get in touch with your regular contacts at Pazina. Thanks very much.
Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Pazina Perspectives. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And for more insights on value investing, visit our website at www.pazina.com. That's www.pzena.com. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter.